sitting here with Jason Werfel, managing principal partner of Books and Brews, but all around Renaissance man. You've been a podcaster, a rad brewer, an author. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Well, for most people that I work with, whether they're business owners, individuals, one of the things I I really gravitate to a lot is this idea of having an abundance mindset. And with you having your hands in so many pots, where do you get your entrepreneurial spirit from? Well, it's just ingrained in the DNA. It's like, well, I tell everyone I'm an entrepreneur because no one would hire me anyway. And uh, but it's generational. My, the the lineage story is great great grandfather came over from Norway, 15 years old with 15 bucks in his pocket, but he was a he was a monument cutter, and so uh, worked his way to uh, Traverse City, Michigan, where opened a monument store. And on the other side of my family is a lot, there's a there's a long farming lineage, you know, cherry farmers. And then, like most farmers, pretty much everything you can do to try to make money um, off of farming. But later, my parents were literal bedsheets out the window, elopers at 17 and 18, like literally in the middle of the night, stole away, couldn't get married until they were both turned 18. And they, by the time I was born, we were, we were living in hotels solidly until I was six or seven, and then on and off until I was 12 or 13. And so it just got to see firsthand that it was like business isn't what I do. It's just who I am. I mean, that's the same thing for my parents. Like it's not um, it's a hobby and it's what I do. And, you know, people say like one of the questions I get is like, oh, how many hours a week do you put in? And I think it's it's not even a question that registers. I heard the best way I put it. I heard it put for someone else was say like, well, how many hours a week are you a parent? <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's just what you are. You don't track how many hours you have to work. You know what I mean? With your kids sure. or with your family. So I think that's, that's, it's as natural to me as breathing. It's just being an entrepreneur. Fantastic. Well, as we sit here in the mothership of books and brews, for those that may be unfamiliar um, with the brand and what you guys are about, what is the origin story of how this concept of books and brews came about? Yeah. So um, it's a, I, sorry, I tried to. I'm trying to make in this story as brief as possible every time I get the question. But <laughs> you know, uh, teacher coming out of college, also a baseball player, still trying to play. My parents had just kind of sold their hotels and retired. And um, about a year into teaching, I wasn't really happy with that lifestyle. I guess you know, again, like being the entrepreneur in me just wanted to come out, and the punch in, punch out was just not something that was working for me and my parents asked let's go into the baseball park business traverse city michigan my hometown at that time i say traverse city i went to glen lake high school so if anyone listening let's not i say traverse city because people know it more sure but um traverse city at that time had very little to do especially nighttime entertainment like it was it was a lot of natural attractions like beaches and shopping you know retail and kind of quaint sort of you know uh, coastal town sort of living, but there really wasn't nighttime family entertainment. And my parents kind of saw it as a way of giving back to the community, um, you know, having something positive and community space. And so we got involved in the, in the ballpark. Traverse City Beach Bums is the name. We had a 12-year run. And what I love so much about the baseball business, and I, and I correlated a lot to going into books and brews, and that's why I feel like it's an important part of the story, is that no one – in baseball no one curates your experience like you walk in and there's certainly people to help you find your seat if you need them but it's it's unlike any other sporting venue or even concert venue where the nature of the event is in itself 
unintentionally repressive of experience. You go to your seat, you watch the game, you leave. Mm-hmm. Baseball is casual. That's why they call it a ballpark, you know, instead of a stadium. Like, a lot of people don't even make it to their seats. They A lot of people spend half the game walking around the stadium. Usually people walk the whole stadium during the game. They see all the different angles of it, and that just doesn't happen in, like, football or basketball or even, like, concerts. And so when, when witnessing this over the over the 12 years – seeing that baseball or the the business of baseball really saved the sport of baseball and minor league baseball there's not really any other viable i mean look at the g league for nba look at the the, the attempts of like xfl and stuff like that for football and certainly you have college sports that do really well for them but no one's ever been able to have like a thriving minor league system fan base wise than baseball and the reason it's not about baseball at all like baseball is just what's happening on the field but the exit surveys show you that no one knows no people can't even name players let alone who won let alone who played people come when the gates open and leave before the game starts just to have a place to go to walk you know walk the kids around play the games mm-hmm. grab an ice cream cone have a hot dog you know and then oh there's a baseball game going on and so i really felt like um being an english major and seeing the eventual sort of collapse of paper <laughs> and just sure. just period right. so i was gonna say books but it's pe- like pe- paper period yeah. that i felt that the same sort of model that saved baseball could could save um bookstores and and there's there's a lot there's a lot more to that but like i i, I kind of like to say that this is my performance art piece for uh community and connection and things that are issues in society that are ingrained in the technology that's making our life easier is also disconnecting us from deeper relationships that we're growing in width of relationships. Like we still keep, we don't need the 20 year reunion anymore. Like we know who had the baby or, yeah. or, you know, cause of Facebook, we know who took the new sure. job cause of LinkedIn. Right. Like, but we, we we're losing depth of relationship because, because of that, because we don't pick up the phone cause we already know because we don't go to the reunion because we already know we don't, we don't invest our time sitting down and doing. And so really the idea of books and brews more than anything is event space that draws people in, in a way that they curate their own experience. And a bookstore creates that because you walk into a bookstore, you don't have to make a purchase. You know, you walk into a restaurant, a traditional assembly line restaurant, and you can't just walk around and walk out, you know, your hostess, deceit, keep you, People don't tell you this in restaurants, but you're not allowed to walk around. You know that, right? They're, they're assigning your seat like you're in a classroom and you're eight again and you're not allowed to move. The server, they will come to you and because they have to keep the aisles clean in order to move 2% faster, make 1% more profit and ta- turn tables, you know? And um, when you have that, you have an unintentional uh, forcing of atmosphere. So... You, it doesn't matter if people even want it or not. If you walk into uh, a place that is a slightly upscale steakhouse and you're wearing sweatpants and flip-flops, like you're going to feel out of place. And it's not intentional. It's not anything somebody says to you. It's not anything somebody does. It's just the nature of, of that assembly line process. It's the same thing on the, if you walk in in a, in a suit and tux into some dive bar in the outskirts of town, you're going to feel out of place. Even if they're the friendliest people on the planet, they've they've unintentionally made people feel out of place. And it's because 
of the curating of experience, whether it's the hostess deceit or whether it's just the atmosphere of the place is narrowing demographically unintentionally. Um, so when you remove the hostess and you you have you make an association with another place where people don't feel that way, like a bookstore, you bring in wide swaths of demographics where they don't notice each other, just like the ballpark. You go to the ballpark, you see family five next to the single dudes drinking beers, next to you know uh, suits and ties, next to next to next to, and they don't even notice each other. And you get that same kind of experience at the bookstore, and you get that same kind of experience here. And then you use events, much like minor league baseball, to um, be sort of the fast track into the communities, the gamers, the live music, the trivia, um, or like the themed events like Harry Potter. Like you might not have even heard of this place, but if we but we can advertise so narrowly now, the advantage is we have a Harry Potter event. Mm. You know, we can find a demographic that's going to like the event, but it's also going to like the place. And so as long as we can sort of repeat that, that's that's kind of the overall process of not worrying about, you know, the every – like I'm not even – I have no – part of the reason we're in the location of Mothership originally is I have no worry advertising to foot traffic. Like it makes no difference to me. Like we, it's all about relationships and lifetime value, and I even hate that because it's so like corporate-y. Like I almost want to like it's like razor blades off my tongue, but like it's just about building relationships so people come around and they feel like I want people to feel like. And this sounds negative. I don't mean it this way. I want people to feel like we're so ingrained in the community that if we didn't exist, or uh, the community wouldn't exist. Like this is just the place you go to see the people you always see after the thing you just did or before the thing or on the weekends and you walk in. It's not a surprise to see those seven or eight people that you know, and um, and then you meet more people here like that. And then you come anyway. That's that's sort of the gotcha. Well, long-winded of, version. Well, that's, <laughs> no, that sense of community is is you know what a lot of the breweries that I've talked to the sense of community wanted to bring somewhere where people can congregate. And I love your tagline: a place for people without a place i think that's that's great when you're trying to create this especially coming out of the year we just did i mean it's just uh where it was kind of disjointed and now we're finding our way back um as it relates to you know the brewery blends that you guys do obviously creativity is a hallmark of this space and that's emblematic in a lot of the names of the beers as i'm looking straight here my favorite is obviously cream and punishment um, <laughs> and obviously i see a, con- a consistent theme with the books and the characters into your beers but what goes into naming the select brands and, and brews that you make nostalgia yeah i mean that's i mean I, I mean part of the reason why i fell in love with books in the first place is because it totally changed my life you know like i i picked up sci-fi fantasy in third grade and never put it down you know and the worlds that it opened in the create. I mean, it changed my life. And so the idea of um, having the bookstore to be able to provide that was super awesome for me. Now about the beer in particular, the names come so easily because of that. I mean, right. these, these aren't like, you know, these, the books, the names, the characters, these aren't just like um, marketing materials we're coming up with. These are, these are people, these are people and places and things and worlds that exist for me. And so, um, you know, being able to have, you know, Clifford the Big Red Ale or Nancy Drew and the Hoppy Boys or, you know, like, it, like these are all snapshots of either my childhood or my current situation with my kids or – and, you know, the hope is, is again, is sort of like – it's sort of like the association of memories. People come in and they see Clifford the Big Red Ale. They see Nancy Drew. They see uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Stout and they're not – 
authority with problems anymore and bills that are past due. They're they're an eight-year-old kid watching Gene Wilder do a front flip in front of the gates at the Wonka factory. Like that's yeah. that's where they are. Whether and and that's part of and that's part of the beauty of books too, and it's part of the, what goes into part of what goes into the beers as well from just a thought perspective is that there's such a crossover into like visual, you know, modern fiction and it's, and it's never going to end, you know, like they're never going to stop making recreations of Shakespeare. They're, they're going to continue to, you know, the work of, uh, rolled doll, right. Uh, Charlie and the chocolate factory. And so these are things that are going to live forever. And, and they're going to be things that much like a ballpark, you know, I brought my kid, you know, my dad brought me, I bring my kids and it's a generational uh, experience. And that's how, that's how books are too. Same, the same thing with the, you know, the kids books and it's so approachable and quick to, um, and it's, you know, what it is also, and I think that craft beer struggles with this at times is that it's also not intimidating Mm -hmm. is that sometimes whenever I shouldn't say craft beer, I should say any like hobbyist or really, um, you know, where people dedicate their whole lives to any kind of any kind of hobbyist thing like that, where people go very narrow, very deep, that it becomes very intimidating for the new person to walk into that place. You know, it's very hard for someone who knows everything about this subject from the scientific, you know, all the way up to not sound condescending or not be condescending when they mm-hmm. when they field the same question eighty seven times a day. And I think when you have the approachability of familiar things. Um, and books provide that. Books are warm and familiar to us. You know, very few people. I think. I mean, maybe movies provide more of a visceral sort of like reaction if you got like a nightmare of like a scary movie. Sure. But I. I but you know. But I think novels. Um, I, I don't. I don't think. I think it's overall very approachable. So I think, you know, the association of the books, the association of the names of the things. I think that's part of what goes into having the craft beer be, um, you know definitely seeking a demographic that feels comfortable coming in as that first time and asking those questions where they would be uncomfortable and sort of, you know, other scenarios. Um, and that, that, and that supersedes craft beer. There's obviously a lot of hobbyist places where people, I mean, I think about me with like woodworking when I started woodworking, I don't even want to go to like home Depot and ask, I'm like an idiot, you know what I mean? (laughs) And so, and so that's, um, that's a, that's an issue obviously in craft beer just because it's, it's for, it's, broadened now but it was a very narrow sort of part of part of uh, beer for a, a long long time gotcha well growing up in uh, michigan uh, you know I, I like asking this you know question because there's always a story around the first beer that hooked you that kind of sent you on a craft path you know when i was in college everybody was drinking the the cheapest thing possible because yeah. all out of budgets right and then i had yeah. a fat tire for the first time and i'm like what is this yeah so what's yours you know for me it was uh the morimoto Soba Ale. I actually it was my inspiration for Shogun, uh, mm-hmm. which which was uh, it's still it's still behind me. We took it off. No, yeah, it's not it's not a flagship anymore. It's a seasonal now. But um, I was actually same thing for me. You know, I was born in I was born in eighty. So uh, you know, like craft beer wasn't even like on campus when I was like I don't even know what craft yeah. beer craft beer. I guess you know like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and Fat Tire and maybe not even Fat Tire. I don't think around then i don't think that had really come sam around adams, maybe. yeah maybe sam adams but like that was that was the only thing i knew of craft beer was like was that like the nationally distributed the big the big big breweries 
And so it was it was even years later I went to a restaurant and it was happened to be run by a childhood friend of mine and they just had a handful of beers and I was just like, I don't know what that is and I was starting to get more adventurous and I remember drinking it and, you know, soba's like, you know, Japanese like buckwheat noodles and like so it's got buckwheat in the beer. I just remember be- thinking like I didn't know beer could taste like this. Like this is this is awesome. And I need to figure out how to happen. And then I got super lucky. Uh, when we moved here to Indianapolis, so 2007-ish, uh, my wife's very first friend, like at the workplace, her husband's from Ireland, and we started hanging out, and he worked in spirits. He was um, he worked at several, you know, as a GM of several uh, places. Uh, Vine and Table is where he was at the time. Now he runs it. Now he just opened a great place called Story Company downtown, too. It's like real high-end. Um, really the same sort of thing, like community, uh, culture driven. Um, but he, every time he would come over, he would always bring in these craft beers I've never heard of before. And I was like, this is awesome. And then, and then there was shortly after that, that someone was like, uh, I know what it was. It was like, what do we get you for Christmas? And I was like, I literally Googled, uh, you know, gifts for him because i don't know because i'm like such like i'm so easily pleased i was just the upbringing i have like i don't need things and it was like homebrew kit i was like i'll do that i'll brew beer and then and then my buddy started uh dennis started telling me um there's this great homebrew shop and i can't remember it i think i think it's austin homebrew supply out of texas if they will they will provide like clone recipes for you you know, and so he kept bringing me beers and be like, "Oh, they got a clone recipe for this beer, this beer, this beer. I can only get it in England. You should try this." And I started trying, you know, cloning beers. And then this was the, the soba was the first recipe I ever made on my own. But that so that was the beer, the beer that really that really stuck with me um, as something that I like. I really needed to create. Um, there was certainly some other ones early on, but that was that was the main one. Perfect. Well, that kind of dovetails into the next question because obviously this lineup that you have, whether here or at Rad, those are those are your successes, right? And give me a fun story around something that was a failure that you thought maybe was a good concoction, but sure. came out dead on arrival. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you two I'll give you two stories. One that was a failure that ended up awesome, and then I'll give you there's plenty of both. But um, I. I think any brewer, home brewer would tell you, right? Like anytime you change your system or have a new system, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. There's always quirks, you know? There's right. always like like where you put a piece of equipment could change something by a fraction or like, you know, or you just screw up and mm-hmm. you put too much in, you put the wrong thing in, like, or uh, something happens, you have to walk away and the timing's off, whatever it is. And so the first time I brewed, uh, Clifford here, and and I actually called it Clifford, obviously because it was a red ale. Mm-hmm. But when I homebrewed it, it was meant to be more of a session ale. It was meant to be, um, even though it was, it was Clifford the, the little red ale. Mm-hmm. And I brewed it, and it came out to seven point three or seven point four percent. And I was like, uh oh. I was like, well, that, uh, Clifford the big red ale. Yeah. And it yeah. ended up being like, it's still to this day is probably like our number one or two bestseller depending on the time of year. And uh, but yeah, I've had plenty of failures. Um, you know, and not for like the big batches probably, but for, um, for the small batch stuff, like we, I would always try to like section off five gallons and then just dump something weird in there mm-hmm. just to put it on taps be like, is there peanut butter and jelly, you know, jalapeno, wheat, whatever. And most of that stuff was elite, was palatable, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, um, for whatever reason, oh no, I guess I have two stories. 
I guess the second one's better. So the first one I'll get through faster. I played Frank's Red Hot in a beer one time. Not a good idea. Ooh. That was a bad. Ooh. That was a real bad idea <laughs> for a lot of reasons. I'm sure you can imagine. And but the one, the one that, and I, I haven't. It isn't frustrating me enough to figure out how they do it. I just think they're lying to me. But mm-hmm. up up home, there's a great brewery called Right Brain, and I was in there uh, one right on the time I was starting Books and Brews, and they have a. Of course, it's cherry capital of the world, right? We have the cherry festival. Obviously, cherry farmers on one side of my family, and and they had a cherry pie beer, and I tasted it, and it was fantastic. It tasted exactly like cherry pie filling. It tasted like I feel like you could taste the crust in it. I was like, mm. I don't know how you get all these flavors to happen like this. And the bartender said, "We put cherry pies in the fermenter." I was like, "No, you don't. <laughs> like that's not a thing you do," because. Obviously, like the butter and the oil and the whatever, like it, it sour immediately. Mm. And um, she was like, "Nope, that's what we do." And I was like, "Well, that can't possibly be a thing." But what I'll try to do is I'll try to put pies in the mash. So I came back and I put I put pump, I'm doing a pumpkin pie beer and I put pumpkin pies in the mash. And when it came out, because of course, then all that filters out, and then you still boil it afterwards. That was my thought process. Uh, and very early brewing, I guess I just wasn't smart enough to see what was going to happen when it came out. The wort tasted great, right? Cause it had all the sugars in it and, it, and like the, and I still, I still use extra spices cause I knew right. it wasn't good, but you had all the, you had all the regular pumpkin pie, um, flavors that you get out of like a pumpkin beer, but you, but it added that extra something. It was really good. And the issue is of course, is the yeast starts to eat the sugar. <laughs> And it just flattened all the sugar and the flavors that I got out of the pie. Like the yeast just ate it all, mm-hmm. and uh, so it came out just tasting extremely bland. I mean, so bland. It was a dump. I just dumped it. It wasn't any good. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to Andrew Castor, Mashcraft. They tried to make a beer. Uh, it was a bacon beer, and they couldn't oh, get rid of the fat. So <laughs> that happened to me as well. I tried yeah. beef jerky. Ooh. Beef jerky, it, but it was the same thing. We we tried to put bacon. Well, I didn't, but see, I didn't do bacon in in, in the, the process. What we did is we took our stout and we just took we just put bacon in the keg. But it was the same thing. Yeah, when it comes out, yeah. it looks fine for a second, but then it starts to like separate your glass and it looks pretty gross. Mm. The beef jerk, yeah. the beef jerky was was a, a fun <laughs> idea, and we didn't get that was our thought. It was like okay, bacon was greasy. Let's try beef jerky because because same thing we found with fruit like. The dehydrated fruit seems to do a little better than like any kind of fresh fruit. I mean, frozen fruit is, is seems to work okay, but like the you know like the, like banana chips and stuff like that seems to do better. And I'm talking about putting it actually in the keg. Like I don't, I, um, we use we use like the we use puree when we put it like in the fermenter. Um, but uh, we, uh, sorry, I was talking about fruit. You're talking about oh beef jerky. Yeah. We thought well, it's not as greasy, and it. We were right. We didn't get the grease, but it was just tasted like you're drinking beef. Like it was just so beefy. It was like there was no. And we tried to use stout. Like it was like you know, like beef jerky stout, and it just came out like you're drinking beef jerky. Like it was just way too strong. That's funny. I mean, this. I love the. What I love about talking to guys that are behind the curtain with the breweries is that you're all mad scientists. But especially in your case, for anybody that played baseball growing up, I did. You made it a lot farther than I did. You know, it's a it's a game based on failure. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. You know, you bat 300, you feel 70% of the time, you get in the Hall of Fame. Does that, has playing baseball as you grew up and getting to a semi-pro level, does that, has that helped you overcome failures in different ventures or anything that you've tried to start? Yeah, I think I owe my entire life to baseball. I think, I think, um, you know, well, equal parts sort of 
lineage, parenting that kind of molded me into the entrepreneur that I am. Baseball really, I mean, baseball makes you grow up fast. I mean, if you can't take it, it's going to it's gonna chew you up and spit you out in a heartbeat. And as soon as you think you got to figure it out, like the next uh, embarrassing moment is coming. You know, and I taught baseball for a very long time, too. You know, I had baseball academies in, in between all this. And um, you see it so early on that the first swing and miss, the first time a kid gets hit, the first time they get a ball through the legs on the field is a real watershed moment in terms of I feel like how it's handled. And by the time I get a kid, by the time they're 12 or 13, they're so afraid of failure. Mm-hmm. They're so afraid of being embarrassed that all the mechanics are locked up. Like it's just, it's just, it's just to make contact, right? It's just to not be embarrassed instead of taking their shot to succeed. And it's, and it's a real metaphor. Like it's a real shame. And, and, and also the game in itself is won and lost by lack of mistakes early and by big splashing moments late. And so it's real hard for those kids that grow up just being like, just block the ball, just throw strikes, just make contact, to then all of a sudden, now kids can throw harder, now kids can field, now kids can hit. And all of the like the off the defense by offense goes flying out the window and those kids get cut, you know, and then or they get really embarrassed on the baseball field. And um but yes, to answer your question, being able to go through that, the really like devastating pounding of times where you know like I've had the yips twice in my career and for anyone who doesn't know what that is it's literally where the ball comes out of your hand and it could go it could almost hit you in the foot or it could go straight in the sky and part of what happens is just like the mind muscle just locks up and your hand can't like the flex of your fingers like you can't and so you literally cannot get your the ball to roll off your fingers and it's just and the, the the mental anguish of getting over that is months and months and months of mental work to try to work through it. And I've had that twice in my in, you know, my freshman year in college and then the the first year I was trying to play pro ball, I, you know, I got cut four or five times before I finally figured I wasn't good enough. Um, that's not true. I still think I'm good enough. <laughs> but <laughs> but um which I think which I think is in and of itself the best people I've ever known, like the future big leaguers, the people who made the big leagues that, are, that I played with, were the people who were the most resistant to the game telling them they suck. That they could go out and go 0 for 15, 0 for 30. They're a pitcher that could give up 15 runs, and they're going to walk off the field and still be like, I was the best guy out there today. And those are the guys that made the big leagues. Mm. And yeah, there was physical tools there. It's not just like, sure. but there was a lot of other players that had the same physical tools that didn't make it. And that was the great differentiator, you know. I, I feel like I had the mental to do it. I just, I, I just didn't have the physical. Like I just wasn't, I wasn't. My body couldn't hold up good enough, and I, and I didn't have like the high ceiling like a lot of the six four guys, the guys that run, you know, like six two sixties and all that kind of stuff. But oh, that's fine. Well, I, you know, I know a lot of guys that played baseball. I, I hung around when I was. The single A for the Twins were in Fort Myers where I grew up. So yeah, had the opportunity to be a bat boy a couple of times. So you get to talk to some of these guys, and I always loved the stories. The miracles, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah the miracle, right? Yeah. So coming up through that, what's what's the funniest baseball story you've ever experienced, either yourself or you heard from the guys that you were playing with, or just pounding around, man? Because it's always it always just 
because there's one here recently of George Brett shitting his pants. And I told, <laughs> I told my guys I'd bring this up because the guy is just wheeling a yarn about shitting his pants in Las Vegas. And then at the end of it just says, who's pitching today? It's, it's a true, truly fantastic baseball story. If you want to look it up, Google George Brett shits his pants. It's funny as hell. Uh, what, what's an experience you have with something similar to where just guys are just keeping it loose? Uh, well, personal experience, um, there's endless endless you know i say so so i played you know i played about half a season of independent baseball um after i was done with college and then the next year i got cut and so i hung it up i didn't hang it up i was trying to play still no one no one would hire me but uh i showed up and we were the mid missouri mavericks in uh columbia missouri which is university of missouri's sure uh where they are and there was two guys. Okay, I went to University of Michigan, and there's two guys on the team from Central Michigan. One of them uh, is the now husband of. Uh, so my wife was a gymnast there. We'll just say like that's how I knew the guys. Like you know, so um, our our wives were gymnasts together at Central Michigan. So there was there was some connection there, and so I get into the locker room, and I'm t- I'm, there, I'm, I'm asking them. They got there a little bit before me. I'm asking about the guy because we just all finished the same time. I'm asking about the team and the guys, and I got someone walks by me, who is probably the tallest baseball player I'd ever seen. Like we we had guys who were six four, six five, six six even, um, but this dude was like six nine, six ten, and I was like, I was like, who's that guy? So so um, I can't even remember. I can't remember his name, but uh, my buddy, you know, my buddy Dave, who's a pitcher, sitting next to me, and. And so I said, that guy's obviously a pitcher. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, so how hard does he throw? Because back in that day especially, you know, steroid era, it yeah. felt very it felt very uh, uh, superficial, like the scouting of it. It was like guys who were tall got drafted, guys who were fast got drafted, guys who – it was all very like – single lane like the biggest guys the fastest guys it was i didn't even feel like they got like the scouts were just like who's the tallest dudes like we'll just draft them even if you threw like 85 you know and so i was like so i just figured this guy if he's tall he's a pitcher he and he didn't he's never been drafted um before like he must just can't he must throw soft and i was like well how hard, how hard does he throw and he's like, they're like low 90s and i was like the hell is he doing here they're like just wait <laughs> <laughs> The first two nights I was there, we cleared benches because the other team thought he was trying to throw at them. And he legitimately, just like every other pitch he threw, was like behind their back, over their head, <laughs> 40 feet into the dirt. Little Rick Vaughn, prior to glasses. And it was, yeah. yeah. And it was just like, I guess they just had enough. Like, the only yeah. way to get this guy out of the game is just charge them out. And so, and our bullpen was in left center field. So we had, I had like a 300-foot run in catching gear to try to get in there. By the time I got there, everyone was just yelling at each other. It's like yeah. we didn't really have, we didn't really fight. But I was like, really, the first two nights I'm playing here in Pro Bowl, we're clearing benches. <laughs> this is ridiculous. That's awesome. And my other story about that about that same season is we were there was like a chain link fence and the bullpen was behind it, right down the left field line, and the seats were kind of like a double seat, so we were kind of sitting up on top to see better with our feet kind of like on the bench, and where the backstop is, there was a little gap underneath it. And there's a skunk problem there. Mm. And so it's a night game. We're sitting down there, and a skunk pops out. And people nowadays <laughs> don't think this story is as funny because, because uh, or maybe if, you know, you're not a hunter, you don't come. So the skunk disappears. 
my buddy Dave, again, same guy, was like, we're in the, if that skunk pops out, I'm going to hit him with a baseball. And we're all the way, we're, we're 60 feet away or more, right. 70 feet away from the backstop. And this, this, the gap is this big, and the skunk sticks his head out that far. And Dave picks the baseball out of the bag and sidearm slings it down and hits the skunk in the face with the baseball. <laughs> and now the skunk is, like, out cold. And now the smell starts. Oh, man. And so in the middle of the game, it's like the sixth inning, here comes the bullpen screaming, running from the outfield. Ah! You know? And I forgot my bag. So I run back to grab my baseball bag, and the skunk is like in its death throes. Like it's oh. it's like writhing. It's not a good scene. It's screaming. It's ugly. So we run back in. The groundskeepers go out, and the way it was was you could you could like if people were standing in the bullpen, there was a banner, so you couldn't see people like from the waist down, so you couldn't mm-hmm. see like the skunk. But the groundskeeper goes out with like the infield rake, and kind of ends the job, so to speak. So all you can see is like the overing and crushing. And then the Missouri football field, like the practice football fields, are behind the stadium. And all you can see is reach down and fling in the middle of the night this white streak end over end <laughs> flipping up. And he just threw it onto the Missouri's football field. Their problem now. <laughs> and it stunk like skunk spray the rest of the season. Ugh. But there was one time a skunk just like, before that, the skunk just like got in the outfield. Right? And it's like, it's not like a squirrel or a bird. You're not just going to yeah. shoot off the field. Yeah. It was like, I guess we're not playing until the skunk just decides to leave. Oh, <laughs> Brutal. Fun story, man. Uh, man, when I, uh, when I, in my day job, when I sit down with clients, you know, I'm just trying to come from an educational base of educating, guiding, counsel. And a lot of times I just have to show people that there's just four challenges to building wealth, whether it's getting a business owner organized or it's finding lost opportunity costs and what they're already doing. As you sit here as a principal owner of Books and Brews, Jason, what are what are some of the challenges that you face as you kind of move uh, into 21, going into 22, coming out of 2020 that we all <laughs> would like to throw away? I, I Honestly, I think the biggest issue is all of society has been cooped up for a year and a half. Yeah. And it's a little... It, and we had too much time. Like, all the reasons why Books and Brews exist, I like to tell people, um, is because you get to know people before ideas. So there's people that I've known here for a year before I find out they, they think something that I disagree with. By the time I find that out, we have a discussion and I have context to why they feel that way because I've mm. known them. Right. And we live in a world digitally where we get to know ideas before we get to know the people and we have no context and, you know, like, for example, heavier issues like gun control. If you've been robbed by a gunpoint five times, you probably have a different view of carrying a gun mm-hmm. than someone who has never been robbed before. Or if you grow up in the country and you hunt, you have a different feeling about guns and having them in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and the issue is, I think right now, everyone is – we're coming from 18 months where we've just been barraged with each other's ideas online and we've been so glued in because that's the only place we could find anyone, even on Zoom, mm. you know, that we ha- that we haven't had the personal connection and personal context and we're coming out of it and everyone's so on edge, so ready to fight, so ready to... Uh, um, and I think in a customer service business is very difficult, especially when, you know, like, for example, we employ primarily under 35 and we serve primarily over 35. Mm. 
And so you had, you know, you had during COVID especially, I mean, I think has always been this way. But like when I was growing up, I didn't know what generation I was. Like I didn't even hear people talking about generations until Mm -hmm. people were starting to like shit on millennials all the time online. And then it just became a real thing, especially, okay, boomer, you know. And then it's like this very, it's like, now it's like generational warfare. Like we don't have enough going on right. with culture that we have to now fight how because of how old we are mm-hmm. and and that is a real difficulty in any customer service business is that people are just ready to fight you know they're just ready to throw down about it um, before getting to know anyone and so how do you navigate those waters you know it's just it, i'm just i think we're i'm lucky that the business is designed to get people to engage each other you know that they have to like i tell the staff that you know, part of the reason we don't have a hostess is because now you have to speak to people. Like, you, you can't just wait. Like, bartenders at larger restaurants, which is nothing wrong with that, right. wait for the tickets to go off. They take the ticket and they fill the order and they put it in the well. And that's just their job. And a lot of restaurants are designed to minimize your contact with people. And we are designed to maximize it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I think I'm just lucky that I've done that, that, that we're already kind of set up to try to get over that hurdle to try to add some understanding and events and the diversity of the events and, you know, like talking about kind of like the baseball idea. Um, but that, it's a real issue, I think, for all customer service-based um, businesses. And also in the restaurant industry, restaurant um, is that there's not, there's not as many – and this is a good thing. It's a good thing that there's a lot more opportunities for kids, whether they're in, whether they're in high school or college or just after college or even through their, you know, their 20s. There's so many more things nowadays. Like when I was in high school, it was restaurant, retail, hard labor. You know, like that was your choice of things you got to do between 16 to 18 or 12 for me and being an entrepreneur from 12 to 18. But um, nowadays you can make money off Instagram. Like why would you go, you know, get that first job at McDonald's and get yelled at, yeah. you know? And and there's a lot less people, I think, uh, than because of that even coming out of because one of the things I think we all develop is not just I want to go into that industry, but also I want to do the opposite of what I've learned or like I want to be a better boss than what I've done. I want to have better food than what I had to serve at McDonald's when I was a kid or, you know, so there's kind of like almost like an anti-inspiration. You know what I mean? Sure. And and we're not experienced. I don't think we're, we're got, we don't have to go through the shitty jobs anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so we lose a little perspective and then also people um, people just aren't I mean I, th- I don't think there's there's less people and I'm just making this up you know people can disagree I, um, I'm sure there's probably statistics are just considering a career in the restaurant industry you know like career bartender career server career not that there was ever like wide swaths of people that were really like fired up to be you know like spending a career as a general manager in a restaurant but I think that now I think that you know restaurant management um, I think that it's it's either it's well, it's a couple different things. Also, the other benefit is it's really it's way easier to open up your own business because of the invention of food trucks and now cloud kitchens and now larger you know the the cloud kitchen or or a commissary type kitchen where you can have your little bake shop concept that sells just online because there's this massive commercial kitchen you're renting your little zone of it you know what I mean and that that kind of stuff those inventions are awesome for the the overall impact of of uh what we do but but it's the shrinking of the middle you know so it's it's going to cloud ghost kitchen delivery service like delivery only type places Mm -hmm. uh or like private um food truck mobile type type settings uh the private chef the in-house chef the you know come to your house and then drive-throughs 
uh, in, you know, the places that if they didn't have a drive-thru wouldn't be in business, which is 90% of the drive-thrus, sure. right? Uh, or the super high-end institutions, the steakhouses, the places that have been there for 50, 60 years, like those places aren't going anywhere because it's still the place you go for the anniversary. It's the place you go for the thing. Right. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the thing that's going to get squeezed out ultimately is that if, you, if you're not the place people go for the thing, you know, then that's where you're going to get squeezed because I'm going to be able to in 10 years get a St. Elmo's steak, medium rare, flown still hot by a drone, you know, <laughs> to my balcony. That's not out of the realm and of that's, I mean, it's going to happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and Domino's Pizza is going to have one storefront and zero customer facing space, and they're just going to be able to drone fly every pizza over a whole city. And how do you, and I think it's already an issue, like with, with Uber Eats and third party places coming in and giving delivery options to places that never could deliver before. You know, if you can get the same experience in your living room, like Domino's Pizza, you know, you're not going to, that's why Domino's Pizza doesn't, there's nowhere to sit. Shout out Domino's. Sorry, I'm not going yeah. to apologize. <laughs> apologize to all my Domino's yeah, friends. I don't have But that's why there's no place to sit is because you, it's because the experience is the same as the pizza at home as it is in the store. In fact, it's even better because you don't have to go anywhere. And so if if your product is like that, you know, that's the kind of place where you're going to be in trouble. That You're going to have to go to Cloud Kitchen, Ghost Kitchen. And that's, that's uh, aside from aside from, I think, just like navigating – the the politics of personal sort of like anguish and drama and like trauma really that has yeah. come through the last year and a half. Um, I think that um, uh, dealing with kind of the, the middle of the squeeze in the middle, like the non-event restaurant, and I think that's part of the reason why like we do the things we do is because you know it's the ballpark. Like right. you're going for the base. It's like if you have a ballpark without baseball. I mean yeah. that's the type of restaurant that's going to get squeezed. Um, or tap room or whatever. Like, there has to be the thing to come for. And that thing might be that fresh pint off the tap lines is way better than getting it in a can at home because you get the, you get the you know, valet-type experience of uh, the person behind the bar that can tell you what hops are in it, how it was brewed, and, like, there's there's an educational sort of uh, step-by-step walkthrough of that process. Um, but uh, I, I think that's what you have to have. You really have to have that that almost like uh, what would you call it? like white gloves sort of serve like service mm-hmm. um, or the event, you know. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, as as you guys branch out with franchisees, I mean, one of the cornerstones of what I do with my clients is that you know we look at twenty five different areas and they pay us on one. We're more of a comprehensive. So as somebody comes to you and says, you know. Jess, I love the concept. I want to become a franchisee. What advice do you bestow on potential franchisees and potential partners that want to open up a, a space similar to your own? Start a lemonade stand first. <laughs> Dead serious. Yeah. If you can't, uh, three things. See if I can get them all. Number one, go put a lemonade stand in your front yard, and then do a P and L on the products you buy, and making it, and the water you use, and the electricity. And do a real, a real like run it like a real business because it is. Yeah, sure. And bring the cash in and put it in the bank, and then try to buy product with what you made and see how much spoils and how much you have to throw away and measure it. And if you can't do that, like it's already over, you know. And then go take your lemonade where you don't have a stand and go sell on the street. If you can't sell your lemonade on the street to 100 people, it's already over. You know, you have to be able to ha- run the tiny little microcosm. You have to be able to be able to talk to people 
and describe and sell the product. And you have to be willing to do that to get out there and hustle and do it. If you can't do those couple things, it doesn't matter how good the concept is. You know, it's already destined for failure. So you have you have to be able to, you know, go hand out 500 business cards and meet every single person in the area you want to go in and talk to them about traffic, camp outside those places and watch the traffic. Is it the traffic you want? What traffic are you looking for? Talk to the people walking by. You know, where do you where do you live? Why are you here? How did you get here? What route did you take? Maybe there's a place that's better because it's on a better traffic pattern that is three miles away that's going to catch the same exact people. And I think that's an issue. People want to be Maine and Maine, and they don't realize that all the people going to Maine are driving through non-Main Street right. where they could pop up for half the price and and be way more successful and still catch the same traffic with easier parking and easier, you know, easier overhead. And so it's it's the it's the basics 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 that and the reason why I say those things is because there is there is a non-zero and this isn't me bagging on people that want to franchise. I'm just saying like this is part of the DNA of someone that is what I said is part of the DNA of an entrepreneur. Like that's just things they we think about. Right. Like what's that stuff, it, the, the DNA of, of the franchisepreneur, let's call it, is that they're trying to skip that stuff. You know what I mean? Sure. Like they want to skip graphic design. They want to skip like employee manuals and checklists. And creating all that stuff from scratch is extremely daunting and time-consuming and has been polished over the course of a lot of years. And that's extremely worth it. But knowing why that checklist was built that way, knowing why that employee manual contains those policies in it, knowing knowing why the logo is designed the way it is and and how it's used and where it's used and and the trial and error and over the course of time, like you still have to know, you know, and it's it, I liken it to it's part of the reason why I failed as a math teacher is <laughs> because I went into math. I went in, I, I became a teacher because I wasn't a natural student. And I saw I saw a system that was only designed to benefit the people who are natural at it. So what happens? Who becomes teachers? To people who are good at the system that you live in. So you have this perpetual cycle of giving and taking from the people who are good at the thing. So my brain works slightly differently. So I wanted to get in to speak to the kid who says, I don't, I don't, yeah, it's a formula, but why do we even use it? Like I'm skeptical that this is even the right answer because I don't even know why we're doing this. You know, like, why is balance the equation a thing? Like, why are we solving for X? I don't, none of this makes sense. Like, yes, I understand what you told me. I understand how to get the answer on paper, but I want to know why we're doing this in the first place. Like, what does it even matter? And nobody wants to hear that. They want the equation. Well, I think that's a, that's a perfect thing because I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek. It's a yeah, me too. of what we yeah. do in our practice is that you got to know the why. Right. To know the why, the how and the what, and the journey to get there become that much easier to define because you know why you're doing it. Right. Right. So that's a principle that, you know, I try to preach in my day to day is that, Hey, why are we doing this? Right. Why are we here? Right. Let's answer that first. And then we can unpack that and then develop a strategy and model around that. Because if yeah. it's not, if you don't understand that, then it just becomes a habit that gets repeated because they don't break. So, and you, and you know, it's, it's, um, and I think I think entrepreneurs have a, or you know, especially I think ADD happens to run pretty rampant in the entrepreneur community. It's part of the reason why we can't. You know, we're always looking at the next shiny, right. fun quarter to pick up. But um, 
you know, the superpower there is the power of observation. I like to say it's I, I don't. It's not that I can't pay attention to one thing. It's that I see everything. And that becomes a problem because mm-hmm. other things are sometimes more interesting than the current thing I'm doing. Um, and uh, the business is sort of an example of that. You know, the books, the beer, the games, the you know, all that stuff that we do. Um, but the one grounding principle that I always that I, that I think sometimes um, there, there's a guy named Inky Johnson. If you don't know who he is, he's great. Yeah, and one one of his real short quippy videos, you know, he says that I like to use a lot is um, it's hard to see the picture when you're in the frame. And I think a lot of people get into business and it's like, oh, we're doing this, we're doing this. And a lot of it becomes like, oh, yeah, you know, we got to it's the P&L and got to make money and we got to save money. And you sit down and you go like, you know, especially for employees sometimes, I feel, I feel like um, stop for a second and say, who, who are we here to serve? And you go, the customers. We open to serve customers. We open to serve guests. We say guests, you know, right. because uh, – and that is a real like, you know, grounding moment because a lot of times – we start to think about things in terms of how can we make more money? How can we save more money? How can we do this? And it needs to come back to like, who are we doing this for? We're not doing this for us. So, so how can we do things better for the people that come in the door? And when you find that, like the rest falls into place. And it's, and it is exactly the why too, right? Like, sure. um, and why we do this, a place for people without a place, you know, it's why I like putting the word people in the mission statement is because we start to think about – it doesn't say – and I, I remind – this is one of my things I have to repeat all the time. Not have to, but I think it's important to is to say, you know, it doesn't say people who tip good. It doesn't say people who have well-behaved kids. It doesn't say bands that show up on time or people that are nice to you or, you know it, – it, people who compliment you it says the place for people and people are inherently flawed Mm -hmm. and we have to understand that coming in and we are their place and so part of being a place for people who are who are inherently flawed is you know finding ways to ease their suffering on some level right like like you know the corporate jargons of like um you know, solving, you know, what's you know, pain points and solving problems. And like, I think like some of that, maybe because a lot of what I've done has just naturally built from a practical standpoint, like living in hotels to now, is that some of that doesn't land with me. You know what I mean? Mm. But like easing people's suffering does, you know, like everyone's, everyone's coming in with some sort of trauma, even if it's like a bad phone call they just had, you know? And um, a lot of times that spills out here and we have to, we have to make sure to, um, be ready for it and understand it because most you know unfortunately and not not unfortunately but i think a lot of us me included you know if we don't wake up and go i'm gonna have challenges today i didn't expect what happens is you have challenges you don't expect sure and then you're you're pissed off about it you know gotcha. so anyway all right last question yeah you know this is when i meet somebody for a first time i always sit down and i ask them if we were to work together three years from now what would need to be accomplished whether it be professionally emotionally, financially, to where we can look back on our time spent together as valuable. As you sit here as the principal owner of Books and Brews, what do you see as the goals for the next three years of what you would want to accomplish, what do you want to see happen with Books and Brews? Well, I tell you, I just feel, you know, I I feel like the absolute luckiest person in the world, you know. I, I think that I've, in a weird way, I've been, I've been, I feel like groomed and designed and like encouraged and coached my whole life or punched in the face like like baseball did for me a lot, you know, or as entrepreneurship has done a lot that that has made me 
the most ready for these types of scenarios than than most people. Like I'm designed for when things go bad. Like I'm just designed for it. I can find not just the silver linings, but I can find what to do next. I can find the next thing. And for me, my whole life is, you know, a place where people thought a place helping people where I didn't get the help isn't, is kind of like my personal mission statement. Um, and so when, when, for a question like that, it's more really same train, different car. Like, I don't even care if it's books and brews, which, which I hope it is like, I, like Mm -hmm. I love to be around still, you know, in three years and, and, but, um, I'm, I'm just always going to find a way to reach people who, who need something, you know, whether it's, through collectibles, which we've got, which we did very well in during the pandemic, sure. you know, finding, finding, you know, whether it's physically bringing people in through that medium, whether it's um, reaching those people online, whether it's building community online or building community in person. I mean, really, my only hope and books and brews for me was never is probably part of my problems at some point in the journey it was never a financial journey for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it never was. Um, I never have run the business. To, to try to make a profit. You know what I mean? Like I've always tried to invest it in ways, you know, invest the money back in ways that I can, because I, I just, I don't need much. And so, so for a question like that, really all I care about is, is that um, there's people who I've, I've impacted, you know, that mm-hmm. there's, that there's employees that I've hopefully, I just come back to like pulling that book off the shelf, like wheel of time by Robert Jordan and just sitting in my basement under the lamp and having that just changed my life, you know? And I just love, I just love, it's not even if it's a book, it's just the thought of that one thing, you know, books is one way I've done it, you know, even having like the, the video games or the board games or however I can do it, mm-hmm. however I can find that one thing that can touch someone to put a positive impact in the course of their life, like I'm, I'm going to find a way to do it, you know? And so that's, that's my only hope for the future is that, is that I'm still just in a place where I feel like my fingers are on those buttons, you know, that I can design, whether it's books and brews or whether it's online or whatever it is, some, you know, combination of that, that my fingers are still on those, those buttons that I feel like I can press, that I can help people. Absolutely beautiful. Great way to end it, man. Thank you. Jason Werfel, Books and Brews, here at the Mothership on 96th Street. Go check them out. See them online. Visit them. Come be part of a place for people without a place, my man. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, my man. Yeah, right on. Sweet. Cheers. Well, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. For the latest on Financial Views with Local Brews, please check out our website at financialviewswithlocalbrews.com. You can also find us on YouTube via our channel there under the same name, Financial Views with Local Brews, as well as follow us on all of our social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, where you can like and connect with us throughout the craft beer universe that we're trying to explore here in the great state of Indiana. As always, cheers. The next round's on me, and I look forward to seeing you for future episodes. Bye, everyone.